0: And so I got a crash course in how critical hormones were for everything. Everybody was getting the hormones they needed to maintain physiologic dosing. We weren't trying to get 50 year old men to feel like 25 year old men. We were trying to get them to feel like optimal 50 year old men or optimal 25 year old women who maybe had migraines or whatever it was. And then my practice shifted 100% just into regenerative injection therapies. And you cannot heal somebody if their hormones aren't optimized. Their tissues won't heal. So it was kind of a moot point to spend-
1: Welcome back. To the Energized with Dr. Marisa podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marisa, and I'm here to help you rock your hormones, optimize your metabolic health, and feel energized in your body so that you can age powerfully and wake up feeling amazing in your body for many years to come. Let's jump on in. Hey, one more thing. Did you know that one of the biggest nutrient deficiencies that I see in people, especially women, is a magnesium deficiency. It's because we burn through this super mineral so quickly. Now this powerful mineral packs a massive punch because magnesium is involved in over 600 reactions in the body. Now it is your best friend if you need more energy, better sleep, a faster metabolism, improved digestion, and not to mention happier periods. And you can quickly replenish your magnesium levels with my essentially whole magnesium restore supplement made with my favorite form of magnesium, magnesium glycinate. Use promo code PODCAST and get 10% off your entire order at drmarisa.com slash magnesium. Now I'll have the link in the show notes for this episode to make it easy. Go and try it out today. The only thing predictable about perimenopause is its unpredictability. Factor in widespread misinformation, a lack of research, and the culture of shame around women's bodies, and it is no wonder Women are unsure what to expect during perimenopause or the pre-menopause transition and beyond. Perimenopause is real and it's a planned transition, just like puberty. And just like puberty, women should be educated on what's to come years in advance rather than the current practice of leaving women on their own with bothersome symptoms and too much conflicting information. Knowing what is happening, why, and what to do about it is both empowering and reassuring. For many women, perimenopause, especially the last five or so years leading to menopause, are the most challenging because of the symptoms. Things like unexplained weight gain, extreme fatigue, crazy sleepless nights, hot flashes, night sweats, migraines, anxiety, rage, unexplained mood swings, brain fog, heavy bleeding. I mean, all of it can hit you all at once. And that this number of disruptive hormone symptoms can feel like you got hit by a Mack truck with no end in sight. How women take care of their bodies during the perimenopause transition can really determine their quality of life and how their bodies thrive the rest of their lives. And I would argue that it is perimenopause, that's the critical 10 plus year window that shapes a woman's future health outcome. And my guest today, Dr. Tina Moore agrees. Not only are we both navigating this journey together, it's our mission to support millions of women throughout the journey as well. Currently, approximately 50 million women are in perimenopause, and they deserve solutions that work for their bodies. Now, I brought Tina back on to share her experience with hormone supplementation as a practitioner. And if you want more, please go back to just last week's episode featuring Dr. Felice Gersh, Not only did Dr. Gersh go deeper into hormone supplementation for women in perimenopause, but also hormone replacement for women in menopause. So if you're looking for more information about hormone replacement in general, next, the episode last week and this episode are good places to start. So not only are Tina and I supplementing with hormones ourselves, but we both understand the importance of maintaining optimal hormone levels for our cardiovascular health, our bone health, and most importantly, for our neurological health. I also brought Tina on to share more of the research on GLP-1 agonists like ozempic and Trazepatide, and her thoughts on why these medications are being falsely villainized and how we can use them properly to drop inflammatory weight without losing a ton of muscle in the process and to really get the results that we deserve. Based on the research and the many cases that I have come across, I believe that there is a way to use these medications to walk back diagnoses like diabetes, prediabetes, and cardiovascular risk when done properly under proper guidance. So let's jump on in. And before I do that, I want to quickly sing Dr. Tina's praises. I know she was just on back in September, I believe, but very quickly. With nearly three decades experience in the medical world, Dr. Tina Moore is a leading expert in holistic regenerative medicine and resilient metabolic health. Traditionally and alternately trained in science and medicine in both naturopathic medicine and chiropractic medicine, she brings a unique perspective to those wishing to build a more robust foundation in their health and well-being. She's a fierce advocate for health autonomy and personal responsibility, which she helps others improve through many offerings at DrTina.com and on her podcast, The Dr. Tina Show. Let's welcome Tina back to the Energized podcast. Here's something I know every woman can agree on. Stubborn belly fat can feel like the worst, especially when you've tried everything to lose it. Not to mention, belly fat can be dangerous for us too. According to a brand new study, women over 40 who have excessive belly fat are up to 20% more likely to suffer a heart attack. And no surprise, hormones are involved in belly fat production. Which is actually good news because we can optimize your hormones and metabolism for a flatter stomach. And that's exactly what I'm offering to you as a free gift today. My belly slim down guide gives you three effective strategies to get rid of belly fat along with recipes to reduce bloating, balance your blood sugar, and speed up your metabolic furnace to optimize fat burning. So grab the belly slim down guide with my proven protocols and recommendations and recipes now at drmarisa.com slash slimdown. That's drmarisa.com slash slimdown and the link will be in the show notes. Tina, honey, welcome back to the Energized Podcast. I know you were just here a month ago, girl, but I, we, we, we've been having so many conversations in the interim. I got a chance to be on your show that I, we wanted, I wanted to continue the conversation. And so what we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about hormones. We're going to be talking about GL1P agonists. We're going to be talking about metabolic health, but most importantly, like how we can support our health span as we continue to age and as our hormones continue to decline. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for having me. We're like in this together. We're we're on the we're on the path together. I'm so glad to have you, or that you had me back on. I'm so glad to be here again. And hopefully, uh, you and I were just talking off the air. I was not in a great place in my health for a hot minute there when I was last on. So I'm feeling better now. We can talk about that.
1: That's awesome. Let's let's actually dive into that because one awareness. I think is a big thing. And obviously we come in with some education and some experience. We get to see a lot of other people, but also we're pivoting and we're really assessing kind of all the time, how we feel, what's going on. And so I would love for you to kind of dive into what was going on with you at that moment and how you knew you're like, I got to do something different here. I've been doing this and I'm realizing that the, the results that are happening, even within probably three weeks to a month, wasn't the direction you wanted to go and you kind of knew what to look for and what to pivot. And I think so many women want a better understanding of how they can make that assessment for themselves.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, I think what I'll start out with saying is that in regards to bioidentical hormone replacement or any intervention that you're doing, it's so critical to work intimately with your practitioner and listen to your body. And the mistake I made several weeks ago was, I think now that I'm putting it all together, was I started on testosterone replacement therapy, which I've been on before, several times in the past. And I was starting to have what happened the last round. I was on it probably a year ago. And the same thing started happening. I started gaining weight really, really rapidly. My skin started looking really aged and haggard. My face was puffy. Like if folks go back and watch, I don't know if that video is available when I was on a month or so ago.
1: Yeah, like- It's on YouTube. I'll link to it on the show notes in case. (laughs) I mean, it's a great episode for that reason alone. And honestly, I thought you looked gorgeous personally.
0: Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I always think you do too. So we're good. But I was just really not feeling awesome. And now, and my husband was on his cycle of testosterone replacement therapy. So I was getting dosed that way as well basically through his semen. And I I think I overdosed on it. I think I was getting too much and it was aromatizing into estrogen and I was just going down this path and I was gaining a ton of weight very rapidly, which is unlike me. That's not a thing that my body does. And I was reminded that I have always been a very low hormone girl. Like I just run low. I've always been kind of really thin and I run low hormones. So my body doesn't tolerate hormones very well at even mediocre doses. So what would be a standard dose for somebody is not my friend in most cases. I have to kind of microdose everything. And talking to you off air just now, we were talking a little bit about how totally individualized this is. Like this kind of therapy really needs to be done for the person in front of you and not according to the standards. I warn this because often I'll meet doctors who are just getting into bioidentical hormone replacement training and they start going with all these standardized doses because we got to stick to the studies. We got to stick to the data. We got to stick to the standard of care. There really is no standard of care around women and testosterone therapy anyway, or most hormones to be honest. So. That kind of thinking, I think, is what gets us into trouble. And it got me into trouble. I was just kind of going with a standard dose. And next thing I know, I'm just way overdone. Just cook me and flip me over. It was too much. So I've dropped probably 10 pounds since then. And we'll talk about this too. I did start like a tiny, tiny dose of a GLP 1 agonist. So I'm sure that's helping to some degree. But yeah, this is an individualized therapy, and people need to listen to their bodies and they need to. Work intimately with their practitioners who also need to be open to playing with dosages and listening to their patients.
1: I agree. Well, and interesting, I wanted I was just curious too. I know that I know testosterone and estrogen can also be fighting for receptor sites and it can get a little messy. And when we have a little bit too much testosterone, we can see fat redistribution. And so did you notice? kind of, you know, gain in, a, in a particular areas when it came to too much testosterone in the system that was obviously t- converting over to estrogen, but also maybe having a play in how you were storing fat?
0: Well, I tend towards being thick-waisted. I'm just, I come from a long line of little apple-shaped people. So I was just turning into an apple. I'm just, my gut and my girth all around my midsection was just increasing exponentially. It was just shocking. I was like, from one week to the next, I couldn't fit in a belt. Like the belt loop, I had to keep jumping holes. And that just doesn't happen that fast. You know, there's nothing that causes me to have that kind of weight gain unless it's hormonal. Like that's just, that's abnormal for me. So yes, it was mostly midsection. My legs and butts still look the same. I'm not really a pear-shaped girl. So if you look at videos of me, everyone's like, oh, you look great. I'm like, this gut has got to go because this is not serving my metabolic health at all. (laughs) you know, this is not the kind of fat we want. We don't want the midsection fat or the visceral fat. So yeah, it was not great. And my face was getting really thick and I wasn't feeling great. So I think I just did a little bit, a little, little too much. And I, looking back, like I said, I think my husband dosing on top of it, because I don't think women realize if your husband's on TRT, you're on TRT. If you're having intercourse and you're, and you're not using birth control, you're getting dosed with testosterone. And I learned this the hard way a few times with partners on TRT. I would all of a sudden start developing male pattern acne and I'm like, what's going on? And this is when I I was not on it personally. And my partner was. And I was like, what's happening? So it depends on how their body processes it and what they shoot out. Are they shooting out a lot of high, you know, DHT? Are they aromatizing it into estrogen and it's coming out in their semen? I mean, that's another variable I don't think we ever talk about.
1: Yeah, no, I know it it's well, and so often women, you know, not all men are getting even dosed with testosterone too. And that's a whole nother, you know, whole nother conversation. The other thing that we were talking about, and one of the things that you know in in your practice was also supplementing hormones, probably even earlier. You know, we were talking about how a lot of you know, depending on the type of doctor OBGYN, you're going to you know, hormone supplementation or replacement isn't really on the table until menopause, where we're really ground zero. But where a lot of symptoms kind of hit the fan is in that perimenopausal transition, in that second puberty you know it's it's the opposite as the first puberty in the first puberty everything's coming online the second everything's going offline and not in a great way and so you know we start to see symptoms of migraines and brain fog and sleep issues and mood swings and rage and belly fat and weight gain i mean the list is endless you know in terms of what happens when we start to see hormone decline and I know for you, a lot of your patients were dealing with a lot of pain, whether it was migraine pain or it was joint pain. or And so, you know, I know that in your practice, kind of finding, you know, supplementing even well before anyone got into menopause was really about kind of reducing some of that symptom you know, those disruptive symptoms, particularly around pain. And can you speak into that? Because I think a lot of women feel like there's not a lot of options when they're in this continuum until doctors are probably finally okay with bring it with, with the discussion of hormone replacement, putting that on the table.
0: Sure. Well, let me back up. My practice was all musculoskeletal regenerative medicine. And prior, when I first started out, I was doing a lot of generalized care, but something that was always common because I had an excellent hormone mentor. One of the women I got to spend years with when I was in school was Dr. Heidi Peterson, and she was like the hormone guru in my profession. And so I spent years precepting with her and hanging, and we're still very good friends to this day. And so I got a crash course in how critical hormones were for everything. She was applying hormones to men, women, all age groups to everything. Breast cancer patients, everyone. Everybody was getting the hormones they needed to maintain physiologic dosing. We were never trying to bring, you know, we weren't trying to get 50 year old men to feel like 25 year old men. We were trying to get them to feel like optimal 50 year old men or optimal 25 year old women who maybe had migraines or whatever it was. And then my practice shifted 100% just into regenerative injection therapies. And you cannot heal somebody if their hormones aren't optimized. Their tissues won't heal. So it was kind of a moot point to spend thousands of have them spend thousands of dollars on like platelet-rich plasma and stem cells if their hormones weren't going to do the job of healing them after, right? We had to have collagen induction. We had to have healing. So testosterone being a big one. I took over my mentor's practice who passed away from cancer and he had a huge longevity practice with all these really hot, fit older guys that were strength and conditioning guys, uh, ex-athletes, surfers, all these silver foxes who were continuing on in their journey of hormone replacement. So I had all different kinds of patients going that you could imagine, ages, genders, whatever, conditions. But the one thing that everybody had in common for the most part, I would say, was pain. And so for me, it was a matter of getting the right hormonal dose on board that would alleviate their pain. And to me, that was the dose. Labs were great, but labs were really to show them something objective because people like to see numbers, but it was also just to cover my butt in clinic, right? Like I had to run labs obviously to track things and make sure we weren't going over or too far under. We wanna get things optimized, but I don't optimize via labs. Thyroid is a great example. I cannot tell. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time someone has told me when I look at them and I'm like, you're hypothyroid, and they're like, no, my labs say I'm fine. I'm like, F your labs. I do not care. (laughs) Your labs are totally irrelevant to me. What's in front of me, what condition you're dealing with, what kind of pain you're having, whatever it is, that's what we have to get a handle on. And so I had people on hormones in their 20s. I had people on their hormones in their 80s. It really depends. And the dose was variable. That's why when People want me to do podcasts on my show, going into the clinical numbers of like this is dosage and this is lat, and I'm like no because it really depends and how I tested depended on the patient what they were on. It's all over the place, right? So there's no, I don't think there's a really great standardized way to do this because most women, I mean, we don't even have an ICD-10 code for low testosterone in women. Like it's not even a it's not even a condition that's acknowledged, and so. For me, it's always just like, how do we get you to physiologic? I had teenagers who were low thyroid. I had women in their 20s who were, well, I would say most women that I encountered had low progesterone. That's an over the counter cream you can or oil you can buy. So there's, you know, there's one. Option, not saying to do that without the guidance of a someone who knows what they're doing, because you can OD on that and feel terrible too. And the interesting thing about hormones is too little or too much, both kind of feel the same. So, you know, there's a Goldie, as Kerry, Dr. Carrie Jones always says, there's that Goldilocks spot, right? We want to get them right in the middle. And I feel professionally and personally that that sweet spot, that Goldilocks spot, is very much symptom related and less lab related. So, Labs are nice as sort of a guidance marker, but I really care that their symptom picture is alleviated.
1: When I think with a big thing that I'm walking away from in this conversation with you is really having that intimate relationship with your practitioner and really being body aware and reporting what's going on. And I know that in my own personal experience, not only have I been looking at my own labs regarding my thyroid and my own symptoms, like it's just been, you know, it's, it's not always, it doesn't match up. And I've, I've in that lived experience. And I think a lot of women can relate to that if they've, if they've had, whether it's a low thyroid issue or they're being managed on some other hormone as well. So I just wanted to bring that up because I know that there are so many women who are getting the runaround, um, who are being told that this is normal, that whatever they're experiencing is like just aging and that hormones are really more powerful and profound than we think, and that you know, we deserve to kind of dive into what our symptoms are and kind of dose accordingly.
0: Yeah, and to add to that, A, most doctors don't have any clue what they're doing with hormones, so they don't wanna prescribe them because they're not educated on. This wasn't something I even picked up in a seminar. Like I said, I spent years with a woman who was an expert in it, and I still don't have the skill set she has. B, it's like trying to hit a moving target always. The more metabolically unsound someone is, the more of a hot mess somebody's general health is, the more of a moving target it becomes for the practitioner. That became exhausting to me to the point where I was like, I'm not going to manage this anymore. And I brought people into my practice to do it. Like I was like, I'm not, this is not a fun game anymore. And see, the third thing is, is once you add a hormone to another hormone, they start to synergize or play together. And now you get different kinds of symptoms. So for instance, testosterone, in my case, I very much, I mean, I didn't test, but I'm pretty sure this was what was happening based on my symptoms. I was aromatizing into estrogen. The more belly fat I packed on, the more I aromatized, the more estrogen I made. I was turning into an estrogen soup and I was feeling like I was getting poisoned by estrogen. When progesterone is optimized, it'll make your estrogen work better that you have in your body. So you know basically what i'm trying to say is the minute you get more than one hormone on board now you're creating a different kind of soup so it's like it's difficult it's much easier when the woman or man has adequate muscle mass their blood sugar is in tight parameters it's they're metabolically flexible all the things you and i talk about those people are much easier to apply hormones to that said it's very difficult to get people metabolically optimized if they're low hormone and they need a little help. So it's a challenge. And so you're going to have a hard time finding a practitioner who's any good at it. To be honest with you, usually you're going to have to travel for it. You're definitely going to have to pay out of pocket for it. These aren't people who usually take insurance. Um, When you're good at something like that, you charge premium. So for those folks listening, uh, they're like, how can I find someone in my area? I get that question a lot. I'm like, chances are you probably can't. You know, Chances are if you really want to do this right. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. I'm hoping more doctors are starting to figure this out, but you know, Marisa, as well as I do, that anyone who's worth their, you know, worth their salt in this is uh, cash, you know, payment at time of service or packages. And often you're going to have to maybe even go to another state to find somebody.
1: Well, and this is the reason why I wanted, you know, for us to have this conversation as I think, like I said, I feel like the tide is turning in terms of the conversation is opening like that we're we're and so that hopefully more doctors are interested in getting better educated. I mean even across the board of lifestyle, you know, a typical OBGYN or or primary care, they have no education in nutrition and sleep management and stress management and you know even in supplement, in supplementation, let alone, you know, in in the in the role of, you know, hormone replacement even still. And so there's a lot of gaps that I think people are you know, missing when they're heading to their doctor.
0: And I was going to add to, to your defense of what you said earlier, like there's so many doctors getting finally, finally acknowledging and getting trained in like menopausal expertise. But I think that due to the chronic illness kind of and toxicity of human beings, especially in the United States or North America... I think women are hitting menopause or having menopausal like symptoms much earlier and it's completely being disregarded. So I would say that there's, I know that even in my, I was in practice for 10 years clinically. And even in that time, the rates of infertility skyrocketed. I could see it in my practice in real time. And I was getting younger and younger women coming in having failed even IVF and having trouble. So I think we're looking at kind of a epidemic of premature ovarian, like, petering out, (laughs) you know, slowly but surely, and it's not even being acknowledged, right? We're just looking at, like, why would we categorize a woman in her 20s or late or early 30s into that? And then, you know, I mean, add to that the stress of the past few years, the interventions of the past few years, like, I think we're looking at a wave of hormonal issues that really need to be considered earlier, more frequently, and the doctors that are keeping up with it are going to be the ones that are on the tip for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I was, I was listening to something the other day and, and kind of the mindset of the paradigm is that perimenopause doesn't even really start until 45. And we're just, that's not, we're not seeing that to be true at all. And um, if anything, I mean, technically defined, like menopause, natural menopause can fall within the, the realm or kind of the, the age gap of 45 to like 55, or 57. So like some women can be in natural menopause at 45 years old. And I think, you know, kind of way early onset of menopause is before 45, but like that's, and so if, if women can be in menopause at 45, you know, then I don't see how we can argue that perimenopause unfortunately isn't happening earlier for some. And I think you're absolutely right. A lot of the stress, a lot of the metabolic changes, Mitochondrial dysfunction is lending to those shifts and changes as well. And I want to actually pivot in that direction because I know what you said. You were like, you know, in order for us to optimize metabolic health, we do hormones need to be involved to some degree, but there are definitely levers that we can pull to support our metabolic health. And I know we talked about this on the last episode, but I want to just dive into that as much cuz if indeed it's going to be harder for us or it is hard for women to find a great practitioner to recommend a great great hormone supplementation or support, I think that the levers that we absolutely can pull are the ones that are going to support our mitochondrial health and our metabolic health, which I really think are one and the same.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first let's say this. I think that for, like I mentioned before, we have to acknowledge it is a real thing. And then we have to, I kind of got to throw a, I kind of got to throw a ball in the direction of social media for creating this problem that I have seen from the beginning. This has always driven me nuts. I I have a bone to pick here. Influencers saying, oh, you can do it naturally. You can do it naturally. So we get a lot of people saying, oh, you can do it naturally. You can balance your hormones naturally and you don't need bioidentical hormone replacement. And we get these purists online who really want to come at me whenever I mention bioidentical hormone replacement. They're like, how could you do that? I'm like, lady, I'm almost 50. Why do you think I look like this? I've been on hormones since I was 33. (laughs) Like I didn't get here. I didn't get here by happenstance, you know? So I don't always think we can do it naturally. I don't think we can always do it with herbs and supplements. And so we're kind of talking about two different things here. There's people who think they can actually go through perimenopause and menopause with absolutely no hormonal intervention or help. And I say incorrect. I wholeheartedly believe that's incorrect. If you want optimal brain function, if you want to avoid dementia, if you want to avoid some of the pitfalls, start as soon as you need them. I don't know when that is. That might be... For me, it was in my 30s. I was severely progesterone deficient starting in my 30s. I've seen women in their 20s severely progesterone deficient, right? So I mean, shoot, we've got teenage girls on progesterone for PCOS. That part is... It's apples and oranges because then we have the piece, well... What are we talking about? Are we talking about optimizing our bodies to receive hormonal replacement or to use the hormones we have most effectively? Or are we trying to do it with, you know, Vitex and herbs? They're two different things. We Yes, we have to have the players in place. We have to have the muscle. We have to have the sleep. We have to have the stress reduction. Stress will destroy your hormones. Um, We have to be avoidant of the toxins or perhaps detox. We need to mind our mitochondria. All of those things... So that the hormones that we are making endogenously are working to their fullest potential, our receptors.
1: Yes. They can bind a receptor site. They can actually send the message to the mitochondria like there's mitochondria to talk to. So that's
0: key. And that's
1: non-negotiable.
0: Like there's no amount of hormonal replacement therapy that can make up for that. If it's, if that's a mess, but that said, sometimes we need a little help, right? We need a little bit. And so I'm talking like sometimes we just need some micro doses of some of these hormones just to keep us physiologically optimized. It's an orchestra. I think of it like a jazz band. If you had a jazz orchestra or jazz band and all you had was a big bass drum playing or all you had was like a light, I don't know, a tambourine. I know there's no tambourine in jazz, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's apples to oranges. And so I-
1: A light saxophone.
0: <laughs> like I say both because if you're getting- dosed with hormones, actual bioidentical hormones or whatever, it's not going to be worth a damn if your mitochondria aren't working and your health isn't optimized. But if your health is optimized and your mitochondria are revving, but you still feel like crap, honey, go get some hormones. <laughs> so, so it's both. I just wanted to say that because I feel like there's a lot of folks online, especially it's weird when I see men come down about hormones. I'm, I kind of want to just be like S-T-F-U because... Like you're you're a dude, why are you, t- what are you talking? Like are actually you and I, you came on my podcast and it came out last week and it was on YouTube and like the most vocal guy on there, it was a guy and he starts Bob, his name was Bob and he starts
1: chiming in and I'm like, are you a woman, Bob, <laughs> going through perimenopause? Because otherwise like- Yeah, go somewhere else, absolutely. Well, and I, you know, and I feel like we're both pretty metabolically supported. I, you know, when I look at my labs and I look in where, how I'm doing- you know, it, I'm very, I'm very happy um, with what it's looking like. And I'm in it. I'm, I would say that I'm kind of, I'm not, I don't know if I'm in the hundred percent eye of the storm. I was just talking to a dear friend of ours, Bridget, who she's like, and she's 49 now. And she's like, no, no girl. When I was 44, 45, I thought I was in it and now I'm in it. And so like, I don't know what I don't, I, until I continue to get and hopefully I never, I never end up in that in it, like that I'm able to kind of find, I don't want to be in that. I don't want that. I don't want to be 49 and be like, I thought 45, but like, no, this is a whole nother thing. I would like to have dialed my hormones in so well in this, this wacky, insane transition that by the time I get to 49, I'm like, oh, I got this. Like, I feel, I feel pretty good. And so, but I'm realizing like as these symptoms continue to like pop up and they're, relatively, you know, minor, they're not awful glaring, but I'm like, I don't deserve to feel like this. I don't have to suffer this because my mother did, or my grandmother did, or we were told, oh, this is just how it's going to be. Like, I just refuse to, I refuse to own that. I refuse to take any part in that. The second I'm starting to, I have something going on, I am down to investigate. I'm down to leverage every tool in the toolbox so that I feel good. My family deserves it. I deserve it. The women I serve deserve it. And so I'm like, yeah, you got a tool. I'm interested.
0: Right. What's it? Yeah. Show me the tools. I'm here to learn about all of them and add them and subtract them as needed. And to what you said, you know, when I was 45, 46, I thought I was in it and now I'm definitely more in it and it is a different ball game, but it's not anything I can't handle. It's just a different ball game. And I'm going to have a a little bit different body composition. You know, some of the women who just breeze through this, I am so envious of, but they have a different set of genes. They had a different set of upbringing. They had a different set of traumas. They had a different set of stressors. They had a different set of toxicity thrown upon them throughout life. And I, you know, as we get older, I think all of the things we've endured catch up with us. And so I really think trauma and stress are probably some of the biggest culprits. I, I made a post the other day of a picture of me in October of 2019. And everyone's like, oh, you look, and I wrote on there, October 2019. And everyone's like, oh, you, you look so great. I'm like, no, 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 this is not a current photo. <laughs> I do not look like this anymore. And then people were getting mad at me like, oh, you're so vain. And I'm like, no, I, li- I am allowed to have my lived experience. I don't look like this. I'm not this size. I don't feel like this. I was feeling like complete crap at the time. I was like, I, you know, when you, you look in the mirror and you're like, who is that person looking back at me? I can see glimmers of Tina, but something has shifted and you start looking like you're poorly aging relatives. Like it's, you know, something's going on. It's, it's okay to acknowledge that. Point being a lot of women wrote back and said, man, I feel it. The last, since 29, since basically this pandemic, like it wrecked a
1: lot of there was nothing conducive or supportive to our hormone system at all or our stress response system, especially if you're coming in with you know aces above you know ch- um, adverse childhood events of you know above a three. I come in at a six. you're right that it's gonna look very different for the women who you know don't have don't maybe don't have any <laughs> any of any zero ACE. <laughs> and then we have also you and I have access and have resources and have there's some privilege there too. And I can speed dial somebody. I can voice memo someone. I can text somebody, right? I'm like help <laughs> many
0: people. There's many people I can be like help. All that to say is that it is absolutely worth the investment, like you said, to be there for your family. You know, you've got a little one, I've got a grown one, and she still needs me 100%, right? She's still a young woman trying to navigate the world, and now she's going into hormones and all that. So I think it's really critical that we acknowledge that everybody's in a different place. Some people are just going to breeze right through and age incredibly well and others of us are going to get hammered by stress and it's going to shift us and kind of all that to say you know you might hit 49 and be crushing it and then some stressor comes and it knocks you off but just know you get back on and you know we have the you and i and a lot of your listeners have the tools in place we have built muscle or we're actively building muscle we know to prioritize protein we know to meditate and have spirituality we know to get up with the sun and go to bed with the darkness and keep our circadian rhythm intact and all of the all of the non sexy stuff that, again, is non negotiable, those pieces cannot be overemphasized. But some of us are sitting here with like severely poisoned mitochondria, and it's starting to show right? That's, I feel like where I'm at. Like I, my mitochondria were poisoned so repeatedly so often for so long that it's really starting to show itself. And strength training isn't going to be the end all be all, although it might be a big booster and and getting your sleep dialed is impossible if your hormones are a train wreck, right? You can't sleep. You're You're riddled with insomnia.
1: Yeah. Estrogen matters. Progesterone matters.
0: <laughs> That's where I was actually when I was on the call with you last time on your show. I hadn't slept in eight weeks for some reason. I'm a, like, I'm like an Olympic level sleeper. I pride myself in my ability to sleep solidly eight hours through the night, always. And for the first time in my life, I was hit with like eight weeks of waking up in the middle of the night, crippling insomnia. So I think it was starting to show itself. And I'm starting to get back on a pattern of like, my aura ring is finally giving me like a little crown in the morning, like, yay, you did a good job. (laughs) And my face is showing it. So I say all this, be kind, all of the listeners, you, me, we got to be kind with ourselves because we're going to go through our... It's like surfing, you know, it's like, you're going to get a great set and a few great waves, and then you're going to get a big wave that hammers you. And then you're, there's not going to be any waves to ride for a while. So, and then again, what our husbands and our part, our male partners, even our, you know, even if you have a same sex partner, their hormones are impacting you. Their microbiome is impacting you.
1: Their lifestyle is impacting
0: you. Absolutely. If your partner's becoming obese and diabetic and getting riddled with heart disease, you are too period because of all of the things I mean literally our microbiomes are contagious so it's crazy and I mean then there's the data on societal contagion which if you have five social media friends who all become obese your chances of becoming obese skyrocket even if you're not in direct like access to them even if you never see them in real life or just having it's just societal contagion so I mean, we're dealing with a lot <laughs> a lot going on <laughs>
1: Well, I do want to dive a little bit into, you know, some like we're we talking into. One of the things I was really kind of emphasizing is that there are some boosters. Hormones can help to boost, right? Um, And then I, I want to, one of the things that you've been diving deep into, and again, we know that there's controversy around it, but the GLP-1 agonist, where if someone is very metabolically busted, which we know is a decent percent of adults with 70 plus percent of people overweight or obese, there's a lot of people that are metabolically struggling. And no matter what, like I have family members who have really tried, tried to, you know, dial in their nutrition, tried to move their bodies, like tried to really balance their blood sugar. But it's such a bigger uphill battle when you've got inflammatory fat and you've got you've been carrying this weight for maybe a couple of decades and it just doesn't want to go anywhere. And age is not on your side anymore, you know, in terms of, of losing it. And so having a tool like a GLP-1 agonist I think can be a game changer for people who are knocking on heart attack's door or stroke's door or dementia's door and you're trying to buy yourself some some metabolic health span.
0: Well, I'm going to say something very controversial because after deep deep diving into the data around and the studies around these, I did three podcast episodes on my show all about Ozempic and these GLP-1 agonists and then I spent the whole weekend at my mastermind event that I hosted in Phoenix with a group of smart, metabolically fit, strength training, functional medicine, you know, naturopathic doctors, like we all know better, you know, they they like you, we're all doing the right things. And uh I argue that these therapies at fractions of the dose that they're being started at, I'm talking drop dose, I'm talking microdose. I argue that GLP1 agonist should be started when the first 10 pounds comes on. I think if you get hit with 10 pounds out of nowhere and you can't get it off, because how many women do you know really, Marisa, who say that? Most of them say, I gained 20 to 40 pounds out of nowhere. Those are the people that I think should be being offered these. And again, at a fraction of the dose that they're being started at standard. The standard dosage, I think the starting dose is too high for folks who are already metabolically optimized. But I was starting to show glimmers of insulin resistance and here's what happens. And we all know this. Any woman who's 60 or even 40 listening to this knows, you gain the first 10 pounds, that's what starts it. It's like the gateway drug. Then the next 10 pounds, and it's like 10 pounds a decade, right? I mean, at least for most of the women I know.
1: Yeah, it's not It's not five. I mean, you know, it's it's like 10 pounds. And I mean, the, we know the holidays are coming right now with the average person gains five to seven and 40 plus, you're never gonna lose it. You spend the next six months trying to and don't. So I argue that, and I think
0: this will happen actually because the literature around- their impact on addictions is so mind-blowing that I think that these drugs are going to be offered to everybody here soon who has any kind of issue. Shoot. I mean, I, just, I read a study and they don't even fully understand the impact on the brain aside, the positive impact aside from some kind of dopamine circuitry happening, but cocaine, alcohol, food addiction, obviously, all of these different uh, smoking cessation, all of these different drives that people are having are being basically blunted out and reduced with GLP-1 agonists. My husband, who is a you know admitted alcoholic now, because we live in wine country, so we'll go out and have a glass of wine and we quit drinking for a full year. We got everything under control, but even still, we'd go out for a glass of wine. And every time I'd sit there and be like, is he going to drink the whole bottle? Like, where are we going to end up in the next three hours? Like, how is this going to go? And now he can literally have a glass of wine and walk away. And I and he told me last night, he brought home a bottle of wine. I said, babe, we don't bring wine into the house. You know that. But it, we were celebrating. And he was like, I was at my friend's and my, his friend is a winemaker. And he was like, I was at my friend's and you know, he gave me this bottle. And he said, babe, I don't want two bottles a night. I just want a glass. I just wanted to have a, I just wanted to, you know, cheers and celebrate you. And uh, we each had a glass and he corked it and I couldn't believe it. I was like, what? I had a, a similar experience. Normally I way over pack. I have this over, I come from a long line of hoarders. Like there's hoarding in my family and it is stress induced.
1: We would not do well together. <laughs> I would just be throwing away your stuff secretly behind your back. <laughs> My husband comes from a line of hoarders too. And so I'm always throwing away his stuff.
0: <laughs> it's stress-induced hoarding though. And it, it definitely triggers when the stressors get... It's survival. It's a survival system. Yeah. Well, I, normally I overpack. I overpack for trips. And this trip, I actually underpacked and I was so shocked and I didn't care. Like normally if I don't have enough in my suitcase, I start to panic about all the things that could possibly happen. And that's just your neurochemistry, circuitry. And I nothing wrong with it, but it's a thing. And I was like, oh, I don't even need half the crap I normally bring. I'm just going to fly by the seat of my pants and everything will be fine. And that I think is because I started literally a droplet of GLP-1 agonists. And if I take more than a droplet, I feel terrible. I get nausea. I get diarrhea. Not only blunts my appetite, it blunts my urge to seek out any kind of joy. So I can see why folks are having troubles on these and why I think that and I talk about it on my pod, I really think that people are being overdosed on them because the standard dosing starts too high and goes too high. But for many who are very metabolically busted, they need that higher dosing because their brain chemistry and their insulin response is different. Mine's pretty dialed in, but a little tiny droplet of GLP-1 agonist. And the reason I started personally was because the data on it around decreasing neuroinflammation, so inflammation in the brain, which leads to downstream pain, and then on pain and On autoimmune conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, severe stuff that's, uh, I have different versions of those in my family and I've been diagnosed with some different versions of those. And that's why I started it. And I was trying to get off like five, 10 pounds, but that was secondary. I didn't, I knew I'd lose weight once I got my pain under control. Like for me, it was just a matter of like, I need to be able to move more and I hurt so bad I can't move. So, All that to say is there's a lot of different applications that I think we're going to start seeing more and more in the literature. These studies have been going on since 2005. This is not new stuff, you guys. Everybody wants to say, oh, they're new drugs. We just don't know. Bullshit. We do know. We've had different variations of GLP1 agonists on the market since 2005 with data, safety data. And all of the data circulating around cancer, pancreatitis, without going too far into it, we have correlative at best data. We aren't considering in those studies how long these folks have been diabetic, severely overweight, uh, gastroparesis, thyroid cancer, and pancreatitis are all very common in type 2 diabetics, or that anybody who's losing weight too quickly can also have pancreatitis induced. So without getting into a big you know, can of worms, people can go listen to my pod if they want to hear me talk about it a little bit more, But and I have some info on my Instagram, but all that to say, the only data we have on a direct correlation with thyroid cancer is in rodents. It says it straight on the Ozempic website. I'm not trying to pimp big pharma here cuz I actually get my stuff from compounding pharmacists. I don't like big pharma, but I do like peptides and these are just peptides. They're just peptides like every other peptide. Unfortunately, the FDA just took all the other peptides away from us a few weeks ago. That sucks, but peptides are therapeutic. They're just strings of amino acids put together in a certain way and so I think this is getting bad rap and what's driving me nuts I can't even go I can't even look at posts on social media about it because the comment section is so much intentional ignorance. It causes cancer. No, we have absolutely no conclusive evidence to show that. We have rodent studies and it's one type of particular thyroid cancer. I'm not saying throw caution to the wind and don't worry about it, but I think it's usage, it's dosage, it's how long people are on it. I don't think they're being applied correctly. I don't think they're being dosed correctly. I think we are cranking it up in folks who are severely overweight and diabetic, crushing their appetite. Now they're going into a more brittle metabolic state because they're not building any muscle. I mean, there's just a whole hot mess happening. That's not what you and I are talking about. We're talking about using it in really, really, really modest doses, cycling it and using... It's just a whole different thing. It's like microdose it and cycle it versus... And I know, again, you're going to have to find a doctor that understands this. That's harder. It's easier said than done. It's harder to find. But I have had a lot of feedback from practitioners since I released those... A lot of practitioners since I released those three episodes saying, thank you for breaking this down. I had no idea how these worked. I'm going to start using them in my patients the way that you're suggesting. And I'll keep you posted. And from patients, not my patients, but people who have been on these medications, the way that I've talked about coming back saying, complete game changer. Like I was doing everything you always talk about and I just couldn't get the last 40 pounds off. And the 40 pounds was
1: driving the, you know, it's, it's like a chicken and egg cycle. Especially women in like perimenopause, menopause who are doing all the things and then have this big breakthrough, this kind of kickstart, you know, especially, you know, over the course of like, maybe just, just being on it for 60 to 90 days. We're not talking about lifetime here you know, and you're even cycling it less than, you know, even more, more than that.
0: A couple months until you, well, I think there's some circuitry in the brain that it impacts in a positive way. And I think you can overdo that. I saw something earlier today from someone I really respect. And he was saying that there's some speculation circulating that after prolonged use eight, nine months that people are starting to get a real sweet tooth. And he's wondering what it's doing up in the, you know, in the brain. The impacts on the brain there. So I, I think there's some things we're going to find out, but here's what I don't get. People will scream and scream and scream gastroparesis and pancreatitis. And yet the doctors I know using it have not had anybody with those symptoms. There might be like one or two people that have come forward that I personally know who ha- who did experience it, but they started at too high a dose, right? And some people aren't going to be able to tolerate it either, Again, though, a lot of the conditions you're hearing about are very common in obese folks and in type 2 diabetics. And so, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about high dosing it in folks that are incredibly inflamed and unhealthy already, who are already sitting on the edge of something and it kind of throws them over? And then, here's the two other things that I don't understand. We are so casual about putting people on all types of medications that these GLP-1 agonists, I think, are going to obliterate the need for, to be quite honest with you, like blood pressure meds, statins. Those things are, I mean, shoot, they had to stop the kidney failure study because the effects were so positive that it would have been unethical to continue the control group. So they had to stop it. Um, Another study came up. Gosh, I have it pulled up on my other computer. Let me see if I have it here. Well, it was heart failure. I don't have the exact data in front of me. It was on my other computer. Heart failure. The results came back from the heart failure study. This, These, these peptides regenerate heart tissue. They regenerate brain neurons. They reverse kidney failure. They reverse heart failure. These are all things that the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry makes a lot of money off of. Type 2 diabetes is a very profitable center for big pharma in all capacities, because it leads to all these other conditions. Read a thing today that they were saying that the uh, joint replacement folks were very excited. The companies that make joint replacement prosthetics are very excited. And the people who do bariatric surgery are very unhappy because the, the GLP-1 agonists are allowing people to lose enough weight that they can get their joint replacement done whereas before they had to go through
1: bariatric surgery to get there. So there's a lot of competing interests. Well, yeah, my mom works. She works for Big Farmer. She works for (laughs) Johnson & Johnson. And she, she has a sleeve for bariatric. And so she was in a meeting with a couple of the big bariatric surgeons here in Southern California, and they wanted to know how they felt- about the GLP-1 agonist in terms of messing with their business. And one of the big surgeons is like, the, the answer that he gave is he's like, they it works. It works. He's like, I lost 25 pounds on this. Like, he was super stoked. And he was like, he's like, unfortunately, I'm not concerned about our business. It's not going to go anywhere. But he said, he was like, I'm not, there's enough, there's enough people to get bariatric surgery. I don't expect our, our business to change that much. Um, which was kind of disheartening. But he was like, but it worked. He's like, I was cardiovascular risk and my my risk factors dropped. And so my mom was, she thought that was hilarious that he was just so honest about it in this meeting that they were having with these reps. Um, and I, I kind of giggled, but I was like, well, that's great that, you know, that he had such a positive experience. And he's like, listen, I mean, at the end of the day, as doctors, we should care about our patients getting better just, you know, outside of, you know, making sure we have enough patient load to do these surgeries. I heard a doctor
0: recently who has been using these since two thousand and seven on the Native American reservations, and you know, where type two diabetes is rampant and obesity is rampant. And he said the main tool of these drugs is to allow people, you know, enough of a weight loss, obviously, and a reversal of their type two. But more importantly, it gives them an opportunity to have new habit change, like really instill new habit change and new, just new habits altogether. And so they learn to eat different. They learn to move different. They learn to do all, and he's a longevity doc in his other practice. So you know he's, teaching them all the things this is habit change medicine but people sometimes need a leg up and this is why i argue that maybe these should be started a lot sooner i have no idea why we are the people online it's ridiculous in the comment section of some of these posts it's like these are reserved for morbidly obese and severely diabetic and i'm like really Like, do we wait until people are having a heart attack before we offer them blood pressure meds? No one says boo about those. And no one says boo about those side effects. Are we waiting until people have one foot in the grave before we
1: offer them something? No. Honestly, to me, that kind of is the paradigm, Tina. People bought into that paradigm. They're just like, you know, and they're just like, no, we obviously how we do things here is we wait. We wait until people have 126 milligrams per deciliter on their fasting blood sugar, di- type two diabetes. We wait, and that's I think that's unfortunately, the, you know, the the mindset that a lot of people hold on to, and maybe don't even realize that they're they're living that paradigm. So they've got this this, and then also, you know. It's, I find, you know, weight loss is similar to money in the sense that everybody wants they want it. They want weight loss. They want more money. But then it's so it's so it's dripping in the shame and all of this. And and so it, it's interesting when people really want this thing that there can be so much yucky kind of controversy around it because it, it's so coveted in a way.
0: I was just gonna say that. I think we've got some uh, crabs in the bucket scenario happening here. I think you know the the hot girls who've always like held the the line on the thin I'm the hot thing girl like they, now they're getting some competition and the ones who kind of you know the people who love to wallow in their misery and they don't want to the crabs in the bucket, you know if people don't know what that story is, if you have a bucket of crabs, they'll never, they'll never climb out, even if you leave the lid off because all the other crabs will pull them down. So I feel like there's just like this mixture of things happening and I'm just seeing a lot of,
1: uh, a lot of hate, a lot of hate. Yeah. I had somebody, you know, I think it's a subconscious patterning as well. I was talking to somebody who I think really needs it recently and they had heard that somebody else was on it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to call people out right now. And they were like, but She's already too thin. She's already in th- and, and and this other person, no, she could she could she wants to drop this extra twenty plus pound she's holding on to. And to some people, she may seem like a more athletic, more, you know, you know, more healthier metabolic, you know, kind of person. But she's still, there's, there's, there's stubborn belly fat that is a risk factor with type two diabetes in a family that, you know, cardiovascular disease. And so getting rid of that, whether it's just that extra 15 is going to make a profound difference. But the interesting of, you know, I think anyone would, would, would judge her and like, oh, well, she's already, she's already thin enough. She's not extra fat. Um, and I was like, but. she's still, there's still risk factor here. There's still, you know, concern and she gets to, you know, reduce her risk if she wants and get into a lower size if there's a side benefit as well. And
0: you nailed it. We don't know these people's family history. We don't know what their risk factors are. And again, I don't think people understand waiting until, like you said, they hit that magical number on labs. We're like, oh, now you're type two diabetic. By that time, it's been going on 15, 20 years 10, 15 years at the least. And getting to type two diabetes is like a metabolic disaster. I know it's so common today and people say, oh, I have type two diabetes. And in my head, I'm like, oh shit. Like, this has been a long mess happening inside the body. And all the changes that happen with diabetes are happening when you're pre-diabetic. I call it phase one diabetes, pre-diabetes. I call it phase one diabetes because all of the
1: same retinal damage, kidney damage, all of it's happening. It's just Cardiovascular damage, dementia, brain damage, it's all there, especially for women, like way early for us, you know, because of all the other th- compounding factors in our bodies that we just, I feel like we don't acknowledge. <laughs> like women are, women are getting flagged way earlier with a fasting blood sugar of, gosh, 95. It doesn't have to be even 100 or 110. We start to see major, we start to see problems way early when a woman was like, oh, well, but it mine's just around 90. It's fine. I'm like, no, it's not. Like, I know that's what your doctor may have said because I don't think that they know any better, but, you know, that's something that really needs to be on your radar earlier. And if you are carrying belly fat, if you are carrying, you know, that that visceral fat, it is, that is not, I love what you say around a waistline being half of your size and, that even even for some women, 35 inches, that is too big.
0: Yeah, it's a red flag. 35 inches is like major red flag. And you will, de- if you persist, you will definitely head into type 2 diabetes. That's what the data shows. And it's, people don't want to hear it. And you're right. It's like, the, you, you said it. I think that people don't understand that everything is a spectrum. You know, like we look at autism spectrum, that is a spectrum, right? Well, so is metabolic dysfunction. It's a spectrum. And at one far end is type two diabetes. And over here is perfect blood sugar handling. And there's kids that are, I would say most humans in the United States are already halfway or over to the side of the type two diabetes. We are in a real pickle here. So if we have something that we could learn to dose a little differently, lower, earlier, and again, there's a laundry list, of benefits that have nothing to do with weight loss. That kidney study I told you they stopped, that was irrespective of weight loss. Because every time I post about it, people go, well, of course, if you lose weight, then those benefits will happen. No, a lot of these studies were irrespective of weight loss. The benefits were profound. And I don't know anything that... (laughs) There is a reason why we have dialysis clinics popping up on everywhere and every mini mall, at least where I live. It's like, it's, it's, it's foreboding doom. So it's it, these are problems that we could uh, ameliorate. And we certainly don't want to wait until somebody is diagnosed as type two diabetic. I You'll love this. I took a lot of shade in my practice from my colleagues way back when. When I first started in practice, my mentor really instilled the importance of metabolic health to me and um, fasting insulin testing and you know, running all the right markers and labs. And then also the waist circumference thing, like that was drilled into me in my 20s. And when I started practicing in my early 30s, I was immediately putting patients through the, the paces and they, they would get their labs in and I would do a very comprehensive lab review with them. And I would tell these folks, like even if their triglycerides were starting to creep up and everything else was normal, or their in- serum insulin was starting to creep up, or maybe it was their hemoglobin A1C, whatever it was, even if it was just one marker, I would show them the rest of their markers and put the story together for them and basically let them know, like you are headed towards type two diabetes. It may not be for 10 years or 15 years, but you are starting on the path of metabolic dysfunction. This does not end well unless you nip it in the bud. Some of them would get mad and go to other naturopathic doctors in town. And those doctors would call me and say, how dare you tell this person they had type 2 diabetes? And I was like, what are you talking about? That is not what I told them. I told them they were headed towards metabolic dysfunction. It was glimmering. They weren't even in it yet. We, we couldn't even diagnose them with metabolic syndrome. They didn't have all the markers, but maybe their blood pressure was creeping up and they're
1: little glimmers. I know that in, you know, as we qualify it as metabolic syndrome is three, three of those markers, right? Need to be out of range. But man, I really do feel like we need, just like you were doing, we need to signal people when we see one of those markers, because it's just a domino. If one's falling the next, it's not like they're all triglycerides and blood glucose. They're not in a silo yes
0: <laughs> it's all singing and dancing together and so I'm not saying all these people should immediately be put on GLP one mark or agonist I think we should obviously implement all the lifestyle strategies. sometimes people need a little bit of a leg up or they need a touch of something same as we were talking about hormones I would give young women I, I would meet young women who had migraines and I would give them a touch of progesterone or a touch of thyroid hormone not a lot, not even a whole pill sometimes we take the lowest dose and break it in four into quarters but like, Sometimes people need a touch of something just to get cellularly primed to do the thing. And I look at GLP-1 agonists as a tool in that same boat is all I'm saying.
1: I agree. I love that. And I agree with you 100%. And, you know, hopefully have a practitioner who's going to implement recommendations around lifestyle strategies, around resistance training and adequate protein intake and all of those other pieces that are so critical as well that I think are being missed. In, um, in the standard healthcare system, right? Where we're just putting people on these bigger dosage and we're just letting them, it's kind of like when we put people on insulin and we're, we don't make any other recommendations. We're just like, here's some insulin and, and you know, work it out. It's a
0: train wreck. It turns into a train wreck, and i I see this. I see why people are scared or turned off by these peptides because I, you know, from an outsider's view, they're looking at their family members waste away, and yeah, I think that. And then they're pissy about people using it for vanity. But I guess what you and I are saying is it might not be vanity, right? Like if you come from a long line of little round diabetics with heart disease, like I do, packing on twenty pounds of belly fat overnight is a concern. That's a signal. Something is wrong. Even though I preach, people know me, I walk my talk. I am not messing around. Like I'm training, I'm going to get off this call and go work out with my coach. Like I am religious about how I take care of my body, but sometimes you need a little help, right?
1: I agree. I agree. I think we all deserve that and I think women in particular deserve a little help and that was really the point of this whole episode was how can we get a little help in a lot of different directions to support us because I know that we are holding it all together you know in our family in our communities and you know we do not deserve to suffer or get progressively sicker over time because these tools don't, we don't have access to these tools or or there's no education around how we can really use these tools to our advantage. And that was what I really wanted to, you know, relate today was that these tools are available. There are people out there who know what they're doing and, you know, we just have to own our health and, and find the right people to help us.
0: Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. That's, that's it. Women need a little help. So that's what you and I are here for. I thank you for having me on again.
1: <laughs> yes. And where do you want us to go? And what do you want us to go and grab? What do you have that we can go and find you? Obviously, Instagram. I'm going to link to the podcast as well. Yes. So um,
0: I just realized my Dr. Tina show sign is on. And I am so sorry, Marisa. I nor- I normally turn this off when I'm on other people's programs. I've been recording all day and I did not turn it off. So I was not trying to
1: aimlessly plug myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> I normally have it. To- In case y'all wanted to know, it's right there. <laughs> It's glowy.
0: (laughs) Well, normally it doesn't flicker either, but it was so sunny outside. I live in Oregon, guys, and it's been like gray and rainy for weeks. And it's so beautiful. It's like a picture. It's like a Hallmark card. And I was like, I got to open the window and look outside. So anyway, shameless plug for my podcast. I'm sorry. There it is. uh, The Dr. Tina show. And then my Instagram is Dr. Tina, all of it's D-R-T-Y-N-A. So there's a Y instead of an I. Same with my website, drtina.com. I have a free guide there you can download if you want to get on my email list. If you want to subscribe to my blog, it's all there. So yeah.
1: Perfect. And it'll all be in the show notes for you can go and grab. It's a metabolic guide. I want you to go check it out. If you're trying to figure out where you land, if you feel like your doctor isn't giving you the real deal, you're going to get, you're going to see labs on there to kind of just figure out for yourself. And honestly, we don't have the privilege of not knowing anymore. We need to know. So go and grab the guide and then, and then you're going to get access to more goodies. All right. (laughs) Thank you, honey, for coming on. (laughs) Thanks lady. Bye. Whoa. I know that was a lot to unpack. And there's a lot to consider when it comes to navigating hormones, weight loss medications, and overall health interventions during perimenopause and menopause. And it's important that you do what is right for your body, given your labs, your health history, and most importantly, your symptoms, right? Your symptoms are really going to navigate you through the process. And I think that's a lot of what Dr. Tina talked about today was that it was through symptom management, depending on whether it was pain or low thyroid function or fatigue or brain fog, that she was really kind of supporting her patients. And I can feel that myself in my own journey in optimizing my hormones and optimizing my health. It was really around the symptoms that would kind of cue me as to something not being right in my body then going down the rabbit hole of figuring out what it is, and then creating an integrative plan to walk back whatever was going on in my body. Now, if you are curious about where you stand with your metabolic health, I do recommend going and checking out Tina's metabolic assessment. I will have it in the show notes for you to go and grab. And if you want to know more about GLP-1 agonist and a lot of the research, as Tina mentioned today, she has a a slew of episodes, solo episodes devoted to understanding Ozempic, Wygovi, Trisepetide, and trying to figure out and navigate if you're holding on to excess inflammatory weight or if you are prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, like what are some of the options that are available to you? And I think the more that we can get educated on this topic, then we can go and make educated decisions about our overall health. Now, if you are serious about optimizing your metabolism and your hormones, and you want a self-guided course and program to move you along with amazing results, I want you to go check out my Metabolism and Hormone Reset course and program. We've had over a 1,000 women join since I've launched it this year. And really everything you need to make powerful, long-standing lifestyle changes are built into this program. And all the links will be in the show notes for you to go and check out. Now, if you have a chance, if this episode was powerful, if there was something that you walked away from that you felt you could integrate, or if there is someone in your life that needs to hear this information today, please send it on and then take a moment, subscribe to the show and quickly rate the show. It takes less than 10 seconds to rate the show, but that way we get more women getting this information and being able to make really positive educational decisions about their health. Until the next episode, have an amazing day.